Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, burnout prevention, and non-clinical career paths. My name is Mike Asbeck. Today, I'm really excited. We've got a special guest that's going to join our conversation today. And before I even introduce her, I want to give some context. This is a new world record for White Coats of the Round Table. I asked this guest to come on yesterday afternoon, too. So I think it's a 12-hour advance notice. And the reason I did this is Kate is coming on today, and she is the resilient PharmD. And as John and I have been having really excellent conversation about wellness within the context of student education and how do we balance wellness and outcomes, this is kind of right in Kate's wheelhouse. So before we get into the topic, Kate, I'm going to turn it over to you. And do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about your background and then also your area of interest as it relates to wellness, imposter syndrome and burnout, because I'm, I'm really excited to get your perspective today. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for the invite. I am beyond excited to be here. I love listening to this podcast. Um, so I'm Kate Cozart. I am a PharmD by training. Um, so I did my PharmD, graduated in 2014, did a PGY1 residency the year after. And then I have been working in internal medicine and now ambulatory care in the years since. I precept a lot of learners, and that is one of the reasons that I am so passionate about this. I love to train residents and students. And so when I heard this discussion, I got really excited. I personally talk a lot about imposter syndrome, Um, Things like taming your inner critic. I talk about psychological safety and compassion in medicine and how that improves outcomes. So those are some of my favorite things I could probably talk all day about. Um, So I'm just really excited to get to share this conversation. Yeah, we're both very excited to have you on. And it's funny, yesterday I, I posted something in the Humans of Healthcare group. We'll give that a nice plug where we're both members. And it's a actually a wonderful group where a lot of really good, meaningful discussion occurs on these types of topics. And you commented and you said, oh, I have so many thoughts on this. And the light bulbs went off in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, we need to bring an expert in to talk about this. So I'm glad we made it work even on 12-hour notice. So Kate, here's how I want to frame it to you. I'm going to keep this as open-ended as possible. For anyone that's joining the show today and maybe hasn't listened to previous episodes, John and I have been on a bit of a, a rabbit hole talking about how medical training maybe needs reform. And what spurred this is there was recently a New England Journal of Medicine article by Lisa Rosenbaum that talked about how there's these generational tensions, how these new classes of residents are maybe more focused on boundaries and not having extra work that they have to take home or staying late, um, working 24-hour calls, all these types of things. And there's maybe an intergenerational tension between what is necessary discomfort to become excellent in your craft, and certainly physician training is based on a very intense training program, versus unnecessary discomfort that is not there for a specific educational purpose. So the way that I would frame it to you, Kate, is what are areas of medical education or medical training that we can maybe look to reform to help promote wellness And how do we promote student wellness or trainee wellness without compromising outcomes or clinician competency? 
and I'll turn it over to you and, uh, and let you have the floor. The first thing that I think is going to be crucial in any kind of reform in healthcare education is adaptability. We have to be willing to hear new things and hear how things are being successful and let it change us. I know that when I was in residency, there was a lot of, we did it this way, you do it this way. Not as a negative thing per se, but just that was the mentality was we train the way we were trained. And I think it took me probably about seven years or so out of residency to finally go, okay, I'm owning this as something that I can do differently than the people before me. And that's totally okay. Um, I took great things in the way that I was trained because I had excellent training. But then I've also included things like listen to a podcast on well-being and present something you learned to me. Including things like that in rotations, I think, is very novel. But it's a great way for us to improve as clinicians and the clinicians of the future. So letting ourselves be open to including that as part of the process. I will say that one of the things that I think is very, very crucial in all of this is being vulnerable. So if we share the things that we are personally facing, then our learners are going to feel permission to do that too. So I definitely am an open book um, when it comes to things that are hard. When we lost someone in our clinic, I was very open about the fact that, yeah, I'm grieving right now. When I came down with a really weird mystery virus last year and ended up having cytomegalovirus because what random person gets that? I was super sick for almost 10 days. And so I had to be very open with my learners and say, like, I'm struggling. Um, I may need you to actually speak more to patients and let me fill in the gaps while typing in certain scenarios. So I think that those authentic communications are a huge part of it. So the second thing that I really want to stress when it comes to this topic is psychological safety. This is something that I speak on pretty regularly because I think a lot of people aren't familiar with the premise of learners need to feel safe in order to truly learn optimally. And so taking the time to talk about what does that look like I think that's very important for us as the ones doing the training to think about how can I make my learner feel safe to learn the best? When we aren't sure that it's safe to fail, what do we do? We withdraw. We pull back versus challenging ourselves. And so I really like to think of it as the situation where we give them permission to fall on their face if they need to. Because if you don't have permission, I love the terminology that was used in one particular article where they talked about exploring the academic playground. 
And I think that holds. Like, if you don't feel permission to really explore your surroundings while you're training, then you're not going to learn as much as you could have if you felt free to do that, but knew you had backup if you got to something that you couldn't handle. And so I try to really talk about that, that we need to have safety to ask questions, to normalize looking things up when we're on the precepting end of it and prove like, I don't know every single thing and that's okay because sometimes we're going to have to look it up. I have um, a diagram that I look at on a regular basis that basically is a great reminder of what it looks like to create an optimal learning environment. And the whole premise is you have one axis where you're looking at accountability. The other axis, you're looking at psychological safety. And you really need to have both pieces being very high. High accountability is important because if you don't provide that accountability, that challenge, then the learner is probably just going to be apathetic. But if we don't have high psychological safety while we do it, we end up with a learner that's just a ball of anxiety because they don't know if it's safe to put themselves out there. So I think you have to have both. And then it's like the light bulb clicks. Optimal learning, optimal achieving, if you're thinking about someone who's already out in the workplace, you have to have both pieces. So I love that the two things that you brought up from a a faculty or preceptor perspective of vulnerability and modeling, maybe behavior that allows for a safer learning environment, but then also the importance of psychological safety and building structures and scaffolding for that. Both of those are things that I think at least my gut says are probably not things that are threatening outcomes. But I'd love to ask a follow-up question within that realm is as we are working to construct an environment of psychological safety, is there a balance where we do have to be careful to not harm outcomes? And the big way that I think about this is that building and fostering resilience in Healthcare professionals is a really important thing. We saw through COVID a couple of years where nearly every healthcare professional was asked to go above and beyond and do things that they probably did not expect that they would have to do in terms of hours worked or grief and trauma. And our careers are unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, something where that probably is always going to be baked in. So is there a need to have difficulty within the training curriculum to try and build that resiliency? Or would you argue that resiliency is best built by providing a high psychological safety environment? And I know I'm making it an either or, so please correct me if you think you can have both at the same time as well. Well, so I think that having something difficult is part of that accountability process. If you aren't given accountability for big things, then I don't expect that you're going to be a great clinician. Because you didn't ever have the chance to really put yourself out there. Now, does that mean that we turn them loose and give them a full patient load on day one and say good luck and walk away? No, because that may not be the best way to make them know that it's a safe environment. So there's absolutely a balance to be struck. 
One related piece that I find really important when I think about resilience and burnout is what does the level of work required cause the learner to feel psychologically, right? Um, There was a paper in 2020 that talked about duty hours, and it was looking at pharmacy residents. Um, So I know this is not completely translatable, but we were also going through the same thing with figuring out what's optimal. And so basically what they looked at is how did that impact imposter phenomenon, Um, which I think is important because if you don't believe that you really belong, and if you're feeling like you're just faking it, are you going to provide optimal care? I would say probably not. You're probably going to get more burned out because of the constant internal turmoil of going, I don't fit in here. And so what they looked at is, okay, what's the optimal place to keep learners from being at this high level of imposter thoughts? Now, the outcomes of the study basically found a significant difference between greater than 80 hours and less than 60 hours. But there's still a lot of wiggle room in between that I think we need to look at and say, okay, where is the line? Where does it really break down? Because I I think that, you know, it's definitely somewhere in that zone. But I think 60 hours is a very reasonable workload in a residency program, right? Um, Especially if you're not having to do longer than that on most weeks. But I think that figuring out where where do we draw that line is really, really important. Um, and I hope that there will be more studies looking at that and looking at outcomes like, how does that negatively impact burnout and resilience as we push the hours up? Because I'm with you, I think that most of the time you can reduce down to around 60 hours and not see a negative impact on outcomes. Maybe because their minds are fresh, they're actually sleeping, and they're not feeling as likely to second guess whether they even should be in the position they're in. It's fascinating, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that when physician residency hours were capped, I think at 80 in 2011, there was so much consternation that there was going to be this entire generation of bad physicians because they didn't have to go through the 140-hour work weeks or whatever. And recent studies have found that patient outcomes may have actually improved, that there was no negative um, effect on patient outcomes or physician competency based on hourly restrictions. We know that staying up all night and pulling an all-nighter studying leads to poor cognitive performance. So, I, I agree. I, I think it's so important that as we continue to work to reform education, that we are data driven and we follow the science, <laughs> which seems logical in a scientific field such as medicine. But sometimes we don't do it. And sometimes we are just driven by tradition. The idea of, oh, well, this is how I was trained. This is how you will be trained as well. And there's almost this this hazing or camaraderie, if you want to give it a positive annotation of I went through these difficult things and this is what made me who I am, so you must too. And I'm down for that to some degree. I, I was in the military, so I'm, I'm down for you know difficult things that build camaraderie. 
But at the same time, we don't need to embrace things that have no tie into outcomes. I totally agree. And I think also it is important to remember that every learner is a little bit different. Things that were hard, that pushed me to thrive while I was a resident, may not have pushed someone else to that same outcome. They may have felt so much anxiety in that scenario, they couldn't function optimally. And so I think we do need to remember that every learner is going to be a little different, and that's okay. Absolutely. I think that's right, where an authoritarian top-down approach is sometimes necessary in medicine as you're teaching, but at the same time, that authoritarian top-down approach may not necessarily help people identify those internal motivations or, or help them build that resiliency or find that extra gear. I'd love to get your thoughts on a maybe a similar concept, but a little bit of a pivot in terms of what we're talking about. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the idea of deliberate play. So I recently read Hidden Potential by Adam Grant, and I love Adam Grant. He's one of my favorite psychologists, mainly because he's very data-driven. And one of the concepts he talks about is the idea of deliberate play. And the idea is that deliberate play, it allows more freedom to practice new skills with a focus on expansion of skill set as opposed to just max performance. So there's really good research that shows that with deliberate play, the idea being is you're doing different simulations and scenarios. You're able to actually build your skill set by encountering different things as opposed to just repetition over and over and over again. In medicine, I think you are starting to see the shift that kind of, once again, is following the science where in medicine, you're having more and more competency-based training, but also in formal didactic settings, you're having more case-based learning, more sim labs, more of these situational types of learning environments because research shows that these are the environments that actually can improve learning as opposed to just hammering people with PowerPoints and expecting them to memorize. So we, Mike and I have talked about this in the past off mic, but let's talk about compassion and how uh, either preceptors, faculty, um, anybody who has a hand in the education cycle for our students, where does compassion take place? How much? When is appropriate? When is it not? What do you think about compassion towards our students? That is one of my other favorite topics. Um, so when it comes to compassion, I think it is so important to realize that compassion as a whole, with each other, with ourselves, with our patients, compassion improves outcomes. You know, when we think about the quintuple aim and we are thinking about actual health systems outcomes, patient outcomes, patient satisfaction, clinician outcomes, equity, compassion does all of those things. And I would definitely be remiss if I didn't mention it because when we think about compassion, I think we just think about a feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling. But it's so much more than that. We can be intentional in the way that we interact with ourselves and our learners and our patients, and it's going to improve the system for everyone involved. You know, when we think about compassion, specifically with patients, we think about actually showing concern, giving them validation, those nonverbal cues of, I'm here with you, time to speak what's going on, give them a sense of our presence, get on eye level, you know, those things are so 
under-discussed, I think, in medical training. But when we do that with a patient, not only does the patient feel seen and heard, but it does something to us. It makes us better people. And so I think that when we show that intentionality and show our learners that this is something you can do even when you're having a bad day and you don't feel it, there are certain behaviors that you can be intentional about and it actually make you feel more engaged in your profession, less likely to burn out because you feel the difference that's being made. And I think we can also utilize a lot of those same behaviors with our learners, right? Like when they tell us that something's going on, giving them space to discuss it with us and verbal and nonverbal cues of affirmation of, yeah, that, that seems like a hard thing. That can go a long way in making them feel like they're not just a fake in the profession. I talked earlier about the fact that it's so important for us to be vulnerable and show the humanity in us. And so I love the fact that you are open about, hey, my kids have a hard morning. You know, I share with my learners similar things. If if my kids on the way to urgent care with my husband, who's a stay at home parent, I would probably tell my learner that because I'm like, if I go, I'm going to hop off for a second. I'll be right back. I want them to know, like, I'm a person too. I'm not a robot. I'm a clinician that is compassionate with my patients, but I'm also a mom. I'm also a wife. I do more than just sit in this clinical space. And so I think we need to be better about letting our authenticity and our vulnerability come through if we want the next generation of clinicians to help push the system forward in a positive way. So yeah, compassion. Um, the first thing I thought of is when we show compassion towards our, our, um, our patients where they're in front of us and we may be taking a little bit longer time with them and there may be something else going on in the clinic, in the pharmacy, um, in the unit that demands time. And your other employees or other uh, colleagues are, you know, obviously want you around or they need you, but you're spending time with this person. And how many times have you get pulled away or trying to get pulled away and you have to tell your colleagues, like, I need a minute, like this person really does need it. And to show even a patient or even a student, something like that, where you're denying others times, other important things to really focus on what the issue is going on between you two. Um, I, it's kind of been a power play in my career to perform that because it really shows everybody in the situation that there are times that you really need to excuse what you may have thought was the best thing to do at the time to focus on this individual. And it really does buy a lot of uh, good stock between you and the student, you and the patient, you and another colleague that you're spending time with, because you are showing them that even though this might not be the most important thing right now as an organization, it is the most important thing in my day to be to deny something else, to spend it with you. Um, and so when my students do that, 
I let them have all the time they possibly can because I want them to know we are human. Um, this isn't just a massive organization. This is about your personal growth as much as it is about learning your clinic. So, Kate, I'd love to, I know you have to go see patients, so I, I'd love to have you on longer, but I I know time is not our friend today. So I'd love to turn it over to you just for some concluding thoughts. If you want to give us uh, any last final thoughts before you jump off and go take care of your patients for the day. Well, I think um, probably a parting word that kind of ties a couple of those pieces together is that when we show compassion, and we show empathy, it is a way for us to translate power to that person. If a student is feeling shame over not knowing something, if a patient is embarrassed to talk to us about this chronic disease state that maybe they got to a point where they felt like it was out of control before they um, came to us to seek help. If those patients wait to seek help, then they come to us and they're embarrassed. It is so easy for us to change their perspective when we show them there's no judgment. I have empathy for you as a human. And regardless of how we got to where we are, you still matter. And so I think that that would be my kind of takeaway is to the learner and to the patient. Empathy is everything. Well, that's a great place to end. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. And I think we'll have to have you on again because I know we're a little bit constrained on time today. And I appreciate you coming out on 12 hours notice. So that's a new record for us. But we'll definitely have to do this again and maybe have it scheduled so that we can get a full hour with you because I'd love to share that with our listeners. I would love that as well. Thank you, Kate, so much. And people can find Kate at the Resilient Farm D. And on LinkedIn, I know you're pretty active. Anywhere else that we're missing in case people want to connect with you? LinkedIn or just shooting me an email, um, which my email is just theresilientfarmd at gmail.com are great ways to connect with me anytime. John, I'm glad you made it on. And I, I know you missed the first half of Kate's conversation. So it was really good. And I'm glad that we were able to share that with listeners. It, What struck me, John, and I love your thoughts on this, the three things that Kate brought forward as ways that we can improve wellness for students or improve medical education to have a greater focus on wellness were modeling vulnerability, creating environments of psychological safety where failure is okay and accepted, where we can fail and have that safety net, and then also compassion towards patients, but also towards students. What strikes me with that is all three of those are things that do not require massive structural change to our educational system. They do not require curriculum change. It's actually a little bit different than our conversation last week where we talked about more drastic changes to education to focus on competency as opposed to time, things like that. And it's so fascinating to have Kate's different perspective because everything that she discussed could be implemented today because it really is how faculty and preceptors approach students or change their relationship with students, maybe it's one that's less authoritarian. So I'd love to get your thoughts on on how we as preceptors or as faculty can implement what Kate is discussing and what that looks like as we're trying to change our relationship with how we teach. She said something about how being able to tell a student that you're at a hard morning with the kids or you know late for school or even showing up to your own practice site late when your students are there 
I think it's great to give a personal motive what's going on. I remember being a student and thinking when something like that happened, if we got a an explanation that didn't even come from the the preceptor that was saying something like, oh yeah, it was a family emergency, my mind would go wild. I'd be like, oh my God, somebody must have died. Something like horrible happened. And if she would have just told me like, yeah, it was late because my kids weren't getting out. It's like, oh yeah, you're human too. And for those those teachers, those um, faculty members and preceptors who did treat me like another human and talk to me like a normal human, we still have relationships to this day. Um, and, I, and now I'm a colleague. I'm no longer a student. And I know that that relationship only went as far as it did because they treated me in the way it's like, you're not like a subject of mine. You are a future colleague of mine. And I could tell the difference between those preceptors and faculty. I would agree. I, I think I am not a warm, fuzzy person. So this is unnatural to me. And uh, I generally try to self-assess and find areas where I'm weak in my career and, and make sure that I'm intentional. And one of the things that I've been very intentional about lately is this newer generation of students. They definitely, they need more of that warm fuzzy. And traditionally, I think the way that I approached student precepting was much more military or it was, you know, I don't, I'm not going to give you the time of day. I'm not going to be kind to you or kind of let you into the inner circle until you prove that you're worthy. And it was just, that's how I was taught you know, as a student where it was very rigid and hierarchical. And I think I was translating that on. And it's something that I've been trying to be more mindful of and change and be friendlier to the students from day one. It, just last week, I, I bought my students Starbucks coffee, which, you know, 25 bucks is not not that big of a thing. But that type of stuff I never would have done five years ago. And yet now I'm trying to be a little bit more relational. I'm trying to be kinder. And I, I hope that it's maybe providing a safer or, or better learning environment for students where they're not as stressed about whether I'm going to yell at them or whether they're meeting expectation because I'm more open with them of what I expect them to do, where I expect them to be. But in turn, like you said, also part of that openness is saying, hey, I got to rush out of here because I've got school pickups at 320 or I'm going to be late today because I've got this going on. So I need you to do X, Y, and Z while I'm, you know, getting to the office, all those types of things where sharing personal life is not vulnerable, vulnerable in a bad way, but it can actually help the student understand where you're at. It can help model that behavior for them. So I completely agree. It's something I'm trying to do in my own life, even if it is unnatural. It can go to the extreme. I've had another professor who there was always something on and it's like, okay, that's where the obvious, I mean, that's where the balance is is yeah we should be able to tell our students um an appropriate amount of personal information about our day but when these people overshare or it happens all the all the time where they're not showing up on time and then they become the issue we've had that problem too it's like come on guys just don't don't spill too much and do your own job like that's that's what your job is as a preceptor that's the hard balance, right? Is it, you want to create a welcoming environment, but at the same time, there still has to be structure. There still has to be consequences. If a student has to miss a day because they've got something personal going on, as a preceptor, 
I hopefully am supportive and encouraging. If a student is missing a day every week, well, that becomes more of a, a work ethic issue. Or maybe they've got something greater going on in their life, but they would then need to talk to the school and figure that out and, and make accommodations. So there is always a balance. I think the hardest thing with this, whether it be last week's episode with the New England Journal of Medicine article or this week with Kate, is everything that we're talking about is not black and white. It ends up being on a spectrum or a sliding scale where with the New England Journal of Medicine article, working long hours is a necessary discomfort of physician training until those hours become a detriment to people's mental well-being. Well, what's that line? We don't know. Kate talked about, before you came on, Kate talked about that balance, the study for pharmacy residency showing that the sweet spot seems to be 60 and 80 hours, where if you go below 60 hours, it may negatively impact outcomes. If you go above 80 hours, it may negatively impact wellness or burnout. So we, we can use evidence to maybe guide us a little bit, but ultimately this still ends up being very subjective um, and having a little bit of a, a, a spectrum to what we may see as the best approach. So that, I think, can make it hard when we don't have a clear-cut path. The future, obviously, Mike, is you've gone from personalized medicine. We have to go to personalized education now, okay? Every student's going to get their own uh, coursework and their own set of uh, their last year of clinicals. Some are going to only get two months. Some are going to get two years. Okay, Mike, that's the new model. <laughs> I mean, there is something to be said. I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of competency-based education for residencies. Yeah. Where instead of saying this residency is X amount of years or X amount of months, you say these are the competencies that you have to pass or get certified on. And then, you know, for a surgeon, let's say you have to do a hundred of these procedures and have the attending sign off that you're competent. Great. And if you are hard charging and highly, highly competent and you do that in a shorter period of time than your peers, we shouldn't punish that. We should allow that person to enter the workforce um, if they're competent. And that's really the key. Interesting, Mike. I know. Well, it, it's not a new concept. It's interesting. I actually, in the newsletter this week, I, I linked an article that was from 2000 that looked at competency-based training and the differences in outcomes versus time-based. That was 24 years ago. And yet it's still something that I think is slow to adopt. I will forever hold that it, it blows my mind. The Flexner Report, I know I keep referencing it, everyone, but it was in 1910. And that really kind of solidified our current model of medical education. And PA training follows the medical model. So it's not just physician training. And I think pharmacy, to some degree, kind of mimics it as well now with residency. And that's over 100 years old. So much has changed since then. So obviously, there's still aspects of that training model that are very helpful and good. The big part of that, I think, is having a huge, huge emphasis on hands-on clinical training, not just didactic training. But at the same time, 100 years, when the Flexner Report came out, cars were a novel thing. People were still riding horses. And yet, this is how we adhere and hold to our training system. So I'm, I'm excited for reform. I'm always happy when we can talk to new voices like Kate that can give different perspective. And I think just continuing the conversation is really the key. Let's move on to some personal items, Mike, uh, to wrap up our day here. Now, you should talk about our long walks in the woods together. You know, it's a good personal we, this item. isn't a normal thing that we do, folks. We do not walk hand in hand down the trails. I should do more of it. I'm an outdoors guy. I know that you are as well. I love my hikes. So I am a wanderer. 
Carol and I talk about how I putz at night when the kids are in bed. If John isn't doing something very specific, you can find me putzing around the house, kind of just like walking around. It's just what I do. So hikes just are natural. Um, I was walking through the woods uh, next to my house and they're building development next to us. And I found something interesting. We, we get to explore with the boys and they think they keep saying, we're going to get lost. And it's like, buddy, we're like 400 yards from the house. I think we're going to be okay. I found these old trees along one of the farmer's property lines. And is this massive tree and it looked like a manhole cover had been grown into it. But upon closer inspection, I saw that it may have been old target practice from probably a hundred years back, my guess. Things like solid iron or steel. And I tried to get out of the tree and I, I couldn't. Kicking it, putting all my weight on it. Um, so Mike, of course, I had to take it in the woods to show you, show it to you. So I'm going to take the exact same personal item because it was so much fun. So we took the family out to visit John over the weekend. And we try and do this maybe every two months because you you guys live a little bit far away. But it was so nice. So we, as John said, he insisted that I come out into his property and look at this tree. But it was funny because afterwards our wives, we came back and they were like, where were you? Why were you gone for so long? I felt like we were English aristocracy because it was snowing and it was actually beautiful out. And you took me out there and we just like meandered along your trails because he has trails all through his property. He lives on a farm and we walked the trails. You showed me different trees. You showed me your property line. It felt very English and very proper. But the funny thing about it is we came home and our wives were, were wondering, A, what took us so long because it was cold out, but B, what we were talking about. And I said, oh, well, we were just debating whether Hitler's greatest mistake in World War II was preemptively declaring war on the U.S. as opposed to potentially just letting the U.S. fight Japan and keeping Europe to itself. So it was fun. It was lovely because we just walked for 20 minutes. It was beautiful outside. I love winter weather. It's, I think, so gorgeous when it's snowy and it's sitting on the trees. And we walked your trails, which are all lovely, and, and talked about World War II. So it really was a, a wonderful bit of self-care for both you and I. So that's can be both of our personal items today. Let's be honest, though. It, his biggest fault, a tactical fault, was opening a two-front war too early in the war. So, okay, anyway, anyways. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting. I watched Oppenheimer last night, and in the movie... He comments and he says, you know, the greatest thing working against Germany getting the bomb is his hatred of the Jews because Hitler apparently quote was quoted. I don't know if this is a real quote from the movie saying that quantum mechanics was, uh, you know, some Jew conspiracy or quantum physics. I'm sorry. So it really is fascinating to think about how many people that worked on the Manhattan Project were of Jewish descent that had fled Europe uh, and that if Hitler hadn't had this genocidal hatred towards Jews that he very well could have developed an atom bomb and just dominated the world because they would have developed it. They were years ahead of everyone else. But the flip side to that is I think the Jew hatred also probably gave him the villain that allowed him to rise to power. I don't know if he could have done it without using the Jews as this great evil because I think he he was able to use that as a tool. This is yeah, this is our Roman Empire. Sarah's probably going to clip this all out. This is our Roman Empire. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Kate, for joining us. I really can't stress enough how appreciative I am that she came on on 12-hour notice to, to give her commentary on this because this really is an area that she has established her voice 
And if you don't follow Kate on LinkedIn, I really encourage it. I think she's a wonderful follow that contributes a lot of great information and insight into the burnout and clinician wellness conversation. For anyone that is new, we're White Coats of the Round Table, and you can give us a follow if you really like what you hear. Even consider leaving us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Everyone have a wonderful week. 